Attorney General Merrick Garland appoints Jack Smith as special counsel to investigate Donald Trump's crimes related to the January 6th insurrection, 2020 election interference generally, theft of government records, and obstructing the investigation into said theft. Jack Smith is a career prosecutor with an impeccable reputation and before this special counsel assignment was a war crimes prosecutor in the Hague. And the right wing echo chamber is freaking out about this appointment, which is kind of one of the key things you need to know. The Department of Justice and Trump are getting ready for oral argument before the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in the civil case filed by Donald Trump, where Judge Eileen Cannon, the federal judge in the Southern District of Florida, improperly asserted equitable jurisdiction to interfere with the Department of Justice's criminal investigation into Donald Trump stealing government records. Oral argument is set for November 22nd and Trump will almost certainly lose. I look forward to that Judge Eileen Cannon clown show coming to a swift end. The Biden administration appeals the ruling by Trump appointed judges in the Eighth Circuit, in the Northern District of Texas, all over the place. These judges are uh, blocking Biden's student debt cancellation program. And Biden has filed, the Biden administration has filed with the United States Supreme Court. As the New York State Court judge officially appoints an independent monitor to oversee the Trump organization's finances this week, Trump's frivolous lawsuit against the New York Attorney General, which was originally filed in state court in Florida, got removed to federal court in Florida and was assigned to the very same judge, Judge Middlebrooks, who just sanctioned Trump on a different frivolous case that Trump filed. And finally, former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows had a busy week in court trying to avoid testifying before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury and the January 6th committee. The most consequential legal news of the league of the week. And it's been a very consequential day, week for legal news. Michael Popak, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm growing the beard back because the independent or special counsel that you and I talked about three podcasts ago has been appointed. And by the time we're done today and after your uh, episode yesterday with Karen Friedman Agnifilo, our, our co-host, people are going to understand this is a good thing. This signals a, a likely or at least a probable prosecution of Donald Trump. And we're going to we're going to tell everybody why Merrick Garland had no choice under the way the um, special counsel uh, rule and statute works, but to appoint a special counsel. It's not a bad thing. doesn't show that he doesn't have the brass ones. It means he's doing the right thing and that this will move even quicker to a conclusion prosecuting Donald Trump. I thought just you were going to say that you were growing the beard back because Jack Smith has the Jack Smith beard. I don't know. There's two different him. photos of Jack Smith that are circulating. There's the pre-beard Jack yeah. Smith, and then there's the beard Jack Smith where he's in the Hague. I'll, I'll the Hague throw this. Photo Jack Smith looks like a badass, so that's why. I, I, that. I, I said I said to somebody, and I meant this in a good way. He looked like a Chechen warlord 
the only reason, I don't know if you caught this, Ben, I don't I don't think you guys talked about it yesterday. The only reason Jack Smith wasn't up on that podium, along with the other uh, lawyers behind Merrick Garland, did you hear why he wasn't there? I think he was still in doing his duties in connection with the Hague in Kosovo. That and he had a, bi a bicycle accident and he was injured. And that's why he didn't get on. He couldn't get on the plane. But he he uh, we're, we're going to extol the virtue. But I I want to I want to mention one thing to set this up because we're going to go right in to the segment. There is a false equivalency being set up in the Twitter universe led by the Republicans and trolls equating Garland appointing Jack Smith to bar appointing Mueller. It is a false equivalency. One has nothing to do with with each other, except Jack Smith will now have learned from the playbook that Mueller did and failed at about the potholes to avoid. He is he is a conductor on a train that is moving at warp speed, and this will not delay the prosecutions. This, this will actually consolidate them in front of one super turbocharged U.S. attorney who doesn't even have to daily report to Merrick Garland to get all these prosecutions done. What he, what he doesn't do, though, is he's not going to be taking over the prosecutions of all the what you call the, uh, the the lower level on the food chain prosecutions. Those are being handled by line people. This is this is a two part prosecution, as you noted with Karen yesterday. This is Mar-a-Lago, which means Donald Trump. And this is not just Jan 6, but this is Jan 6, the peaceful transfer of power. And those are the apex, the very top including Donald Trump. We would not have a special counsel if the probable prosecution wasn't directed at now candidate Trump. So the only part I will disagree with what you said <laughs> is on who is making the false equivalence, because what I actually see happening is on the right wing echo chamber. They are terrified of Jack Smith. They're already going down the path of Jack Smith is a radical extremist, which couldn't be further from the truth. He's in Europe. He's doing what the Europeans want. They're already doing that line of attack. I actually see the false equivalence coming from people who would otherwise be sympathetic to a pro-democracy agenda who I believe rightfully so have, whether you want to call it uh, PTSD or something like that, from the trauma, frankly, that the Mueller investigation caused and how everyone put their hopes into Mueller, who ultimately reached a conclusion that he did not have the power to indict a sitting precedent based on these norms. And so people are drawing, and I understand why they're drawing these equivalences, because we've gone through this collective of somebody like Donald Trump seemingly always getting away yeah, but with things. And that's why, but, though, and, and I, I'm going to get back to you in a second, Popak, but that's why we brought on Karen Friedman Agnifilo, who was uh, the number two in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. She worked there for almost 30 years. She was the number two there. She basically ran the Manhattan DA's office and she worked with Jack Smith. Not only that, but Karen Friedman Agnifilo has been a very big critic of the way Merrick Garland has run the investigation so far into Trump. She's been very critical of it. And I've disagreed and sparred intellectually with Karen over the fact that I thought it was being handled well. And she thought 
it was going too slow. But she called me right after Jack Smith was appointed special counsel. And she said, Ben, we've got to do this live. I know Jack Smith. They're really going to prosecute Trump. You don't pick Jack Smith if you're not going in that direction. And Jack Smith wouldn't take the assignment if he wasn't going in that direction. So, Popak, I want to turn it over to you now, though, to really address what's going on out there, because a lot of people are saying this. This is Merrick Garland delay, delay, delay. Merrick Garland looks weak. He's always been weak. What's going on? I see that over and over again in the comments. In the, in the DMs, throughout the Twitterverse and social media. But tell us what's going on here. And I, I understand where that sentiment's coming, but people look to you and this show and our experts that we bring on to really analyze these issues. So tell us about this appointment. Best and most appropriate thing Merrick Garland could do in this situation, and I, don't, I think he had no choice, was to appoint a special counsel. Let me repeat that. Merrick Garland had no choice but to appoint a special counsel once Donald Trump announced he was a candidate for office again. And Joe Biden has said basically the same thing. Why? Because Merrick Garland's ultimate boss is the executive branch, is Joe Biden. And to avoid any appearance of impropriety or impropriety or ethical conflict, if you read carefully and, and I know that Merrick Garland does, and all the former prosecutors do. If you read carefully the provision on the special counsel, what used to be called the independent prosecutor, but is now the special counsel, about when the attorney general has to appoint, shall appoint, not may appoint, a special a prosecutor, it's when the special, it's when the attorney general believes that there is a conflict of interest involving the Department of Justice, and it is in the public interest to have a special uh, a special counsel. There is no doubt in my mind, or anyone who's really thinking about this coherently, that there is a conflict of interest by the Department of Justice, whose boss is Joe Biden, ultimately, in answering to Joe Biden and the, politi and the politicization, uh, or the attempted politicization of the prosecution. How do we also know that? It's not only that Donald Trump announced with this ridiculous Mar-a-Lago announcement that he is now candidate Trump, that Joe Biden has said he's likely to run, although he'll confer with his family over the holidays. He also has, you know, uh, we lost at the midterms, the House. Jim Jordan, who will be the incoming uh, head of the House Judiciary Committee in the 118th Congress, has already sent a letter dated the 2nd of November to the Department of Justice and the FBI saying that the House Judiciary, led by the Republicans, is opening up an investigation about all the prosecutions, all the investigations. They also released a 1,000-page report based on whistleblowers about the FBI being too political. So this is going to be their, uh, the fire that they're going to lay down as cover for Donald Trump. But what all it means is, we're in a political maelstrom that the prosecutor who's now going to lead this pop-up U.S. attorney's office with superpowers that, that Merrick Garland just created using the special counsel power, that um, they're, they're going to um, take it away from the argument. It, it, you know, we know the Republicans are going to continue to argue that there is, this is all political, but, but Merrick Garland had to do this. I'm here on the record to say he had no choice. It is not an indication of him being 
feckless or him being weak. It's an indication of him being strong. And the difference between the Barr, the Mueller investigation and the Smith investigation, we'd have to do a whole show on the differences. First of all, Mueller started from scratch. Took him two or three years. He got a couple of indictments out of it. Jack Smith's not starting from scratch. He is picking up, and he's made he made this point in his own release, press release, that that no part of the investigation will flag or be delayed because of his appointment. This is already two years in the making. Mar-a-Lago a little bit shorter in the investigation. Jack Smith just getting on top of it and picking up and moving the ball forward. If you're playing football here. If the line prosecutors got the case to the within the red zone at the 10-yard line for the Jan 6th and maybe the 5-yard line for the Mar-a-Lago, Jack Smith is the fullback that's going to punch it into the end zone in short order. His record speaks to prosecuting those elected officials in public corruption who have committed crimes. He's been successful in some. He's not been successful in some. He prosecuted the former Senator John Edwards about his uh, his uh, diverting of cash to his, his uh, mistress. He was successful in other ones. He was so successful in one that Donald Trump had to pardon the person that was convicted by Jack Smith. But but let me let me just summarize the principles of federal prosecution, which the Department of Justice operates under under their manual, says that, that, the, that a prosecution will only happen if the fundamental interest of society at large is, is, um, is advanced and that the admissible evidence that is collected will probably, this is the language from the guidelines, probably be sufficient to sustain a conviction. This is now for one person to decide, Jack Smith, based on the presentation of the evidence given to him by the line prosecutors who now report to him. He'll build his own team. But the current prosecutors that have been handling the case to date and the FBI agents and the investigators now all report to him. He makes the final call. And if Merrick Garland decides to override, this is where the special counsel rule is very, really, really important. The special counsel does not report day to day to Merrick Garland or any attorney general. He's on his own or she's on her own, if she makes a decision to prosecute either Mar-a-Lago or Donald Trump or others at that level, or higher, uh, not higher than Donald Trump, others at that level for the Jan 6th um, interference with the peaceful transfer of power, if Jack Smith makes that decision to prosecute one or both of those or none of those, Merrick Garland can override that decision, but he has to report to the House Judiciary Committee, which will be led by Republicans under the statute. So this is a superpower, turbocharged, pop-up U.S. attorney who has one case or two cases in this case. So for those that think this is going to lead to a delay, it's the opposite. This is going to turbocharge the investigation centered and coalesced around one, one devoted prosecutor who answers to no one except Merrick Garland, who then answers to the House Judiciary Committee if he decides to override him. I think I think he's going to very quickly find that there is probably sufficient, this is the language, probably sufficient evidence to sustain a conviction at Mar-a-Lago. And he's getting the presentations made to him about the two-year investigation about Donald Trump and Jan 6th. And if he finds that there is probably sufficient uh, inf uh, evidence to sustain a conviction, 
he'll naturally find that the federal interest of, of the or the fundamental interest of the society is being served by prosecuting it. We will see a prosecution. Don't compare it to Mueller, who made a decision on his own that he was not going to make a recommendation to indict Trump. He was going to leave that to Barr. That was a fatal error. Mueller, with all due respect, was also, we had seen him testify, looked like he'd lost his fastball to mix sports metaphors. Looked like he wasn't really on his game. He hadn't been a line prosecutor in a long, long time. This guy is as sharp as a razor blade in terms of daily prosecutor. You know, the way he killed time, leaving all the U.S. attorney offices and Eastern District and Tennessee and, and working with Karen at the uh, Manhattan DA's office. How did he kill time? Lead prosecutor in Kosovo and in, at the Hague of war criminals. Okay, this guy doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest. He's like Terminator. And this is, as you said, the Republicans' worst nightmare. Done. And you know who else, Popak, who believes that uh, there's enough evidence to indict Donald Trump? Bill Barr, who was just did a PBS interview and said that he believed that there was enough uh, evidence to indict. Let me give some background on Jack Smith quickly, though, and give you his resume, even though we touched upon it a little earlier. 1994 assistant DA with the New York DA's office. 1999 assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York from 2008 to 2010, served with the International Criminal Court on War Crimes. In 2010, he was the chief of the Department of Justice's Public Integrity Section. In 2015, he was the assistant U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Tennessee and presently is the chief prosecutor of the special court at The Hague for war crimes in Kosovo. This is the statement that Jack Smith gave. I intend to conduct the assigned investigation and any prosecutions that may result from them independently and in the best traditions of the Department of Justice. The pace of the investigations will not pause or flag under my watch. I will exercise independent judgment and will move the investigations forward expeditiously and thoroughly to whatever outcome the facts and law dictate. I want to address a common uh, criticism of Merrick Garland. And people say, if this was anyone other than Trump, they would be indicted yesterday. And to that, I say, I agree with you, but all of those other people are not former presidents. And when in 2016, Americans decided, you know what, Hillary Clinton, Trump, basically the same thing, whatever, and didn't go out and vote in the numbers that they should have, and Donald Trump was elected president. Donald Trump has the ability to make arguments that you can't. That's just the way it is. It doesn't mean his arguments have merit, but when you have a criminal ex-president who wants to cause harm and doesn't care about our democratic institutions, he can manipulate and use the Constitution to, in essence, kind of mutate and destroy itself. And let me give you an example of what he's done so far and what the Department of Justice has had to do to counteract it, as I like to say in this cat and a mutant rat game, not the cat and mouse game that's been going on between the DOJ and Trump. But here's an example. The ability of a president to declare executive privilege. 
The law does not really allow Trump to make a claim for executive privilege now to try to block an ongoing criminal investigation by the current executive branch, but there really hasn't been a lot of cases on it. And, and, you know, in some dissents, like from Brett Kavanaugh in that case involving um, the January 6th committee, you know, there's even some support on the Supreme Court that maybe the president, a former president can do it, which is enough for him to make the argument. So what has Trump done since January 6th? He has asserted essentially blanket executive privilege over all of his top aides. So what Merrick Garland's had to do and what Merrick Garland's done, it's not like Merrick Garland's sitting around and doing nothing, right? Merrick Garland subpoenas these individuals like Pat Cipollone. Let's use Cipollone as an example or Pat Philbin, the top White House lawyers, former White House lawyers under Trump, right? They show up to a grand jury. You have to coordinate it. You can't kidnap them. And just make them show up, right? There has to be a date that, you know, you have to set a date with the grand jury. People have to show up and get selected for a grand jury. And it sucks that that takes time, but that's life. (laughs) That actually takes time. You assemble a grand jury, you subpoena the individuals, the individuals show up and those individuals showed up early in the summer. Those individuals also testified before the January 6th committee. But you'll recall on the critical questions when Cipollone and Feldman and Mark Short, who was former vice president's former chief of staff, or Greg Jacobs, the former general counsel to former Vice President Pence, right? When they're asked these questions, the pivotal ones that you would need for a conviction of Trump, right? Popak, like, what did Donald Trump say to you? they would all have to say, we assert the executive privilege. And the January 6th committee did not probe deeper just based on the time dictates of the January 6th mandate. Separately, the Department of Justice has had to file motions with the presiding judge who oversees the grand juries in Washington, D.C., Judge Beryl Howell, and she's ruled in favor of the Department of Justice with respect to former Vice President Pence's uh, former chief of staff and former general counsel. So they then had to go back after testifying over the summer. They had to go back in October after all these motions and hearings were filed, and they testified about what Trump specifically told them. Now, everybody in Trump's orbit does that. So Merrick Garland has to fight each of those battles with separate rulings from the court ruling that the Department of Justice can gather and get this information. And Merrick Garland is winning those battles. So let me just play out this hypothetical situation to all of the people who say he should have indicted five months ago or six months ago or nine months ago. Play out the situation with me. So I'm Merrick Garland or I'm the prosecutor trying the case. I go, Your Honor, for my first witness, I am going to call Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel. Cipollone shows up there. Cipollone, I go through his background, and then I go, so what did Donald Trump specifically tell you leading up to the election in November of 2020? Objection, Your Honor. The objection comes from Trump's lawyer. We're asserting executive privilege. And then what does the DOJ do? Your Honor, they don't have executive privilege. And then the judge goes, well, have you briefed this issue? Have you addressed this issue? And then the Department of Justice lawyer goes, no, I didn't. And then the judge goes to the Department of Justice lawyer, well, why didn't you? 
And then the Department of Justice lawyer goes, well, look, social media said that we had to indict this guy nine months ago. So we did the indictment and we said, well, screw it. We don't need to go through these motions and prevail on executive privilege. We just we need to get the show on the freaking road here. So therefore, we are pursuing the case. You know what the judge is going to say? Well, sorry, DOJ, you're not going to get that information. And you know who's going to see that? The jury who's watching that. That's but one example. I can go into that tens of, you know, hundreds of times with other witnesses, but you have to dot all your I's and cross all your T's. And the Department of Justice didn't just wake up on Friday and go, you know what, <laughs> special independent prosecutor, you know, special counsel time. It's time for a special counsel. That's not what they did. They've been very diligently pursuing it. Unfortunately, the reason the public doesn't know about it, or fortunately, if you agree with our processes here, is that the grand juries are conducted in secret. The January 6th committee is conducted in public. So you don't see all of the testimony taking place that the Department of Justice is getting from these witnesses as they build this case, because all of that is happening in, in secret. Here's another thing I say to the people who don't like Merrick Garland. This should be a great thing for you, because now you got Jack Smith. <laughs> so if you didn't like Merrick Garland and you thought Merrick Garland's weak, Shouldn't you be happy that he's now appointed a prosecutor who everybody says is not weak? So like you just got a, a substitute. You just did a trade, right? If you didn't like the way, I don't know, the basketball player, if you didn't like the way this basketball player was playing, you now got LeBron James in his prime to be the prosecutor and to look into these issues. Like, isn't that something that you would absolutely want? And then I'll say this one final thing, Popak, and we you could comment on it or we, we could change topics. But so far as so far also, the Department of Justice has been prosecuting over 900 other insurrection cases. And essentially every single one of them, they've gotten convictions, all of their jury trials, they've gotten all convictions, they've hung one specific count where, the, where one person was found guilty, where they tried a Capitol Police officer. Um, but from the hundreds of cases that have already been tried, they've been 100% on jury trials, on convictions, which is unheard of. So they've dealt with the backlog, while they've been getting all of these convictions and pleas and all of these things that have been going on with the all the other insurrectionists trying the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, getting the other terrorist groups to plead guilty, like they're doing all of this. In the meantime, they've got grand juries that have been going on for over a year plus where they've been taking this testimony from all of the you know witnesses. When the witnesses would object, they would go and file motions. So they've got all of this. Now they turn it over to the LeBron James of prosecutors. What more can you want? And just look at what the right wing is doing here. The right wing is fucking, excuse me, is freaking, is freaking out about this right now, Popak. And... That tells you they're nervous. They know what's going on. So that's my overall kind of view. And then that's why we brought on Karen Friedman Agnifilo, who's worked with Jack Smith, who can actually tell you, look, Jack Smith wouldn't take this job based on his career trajectory if he didn't think there could be a case. She has no inside info, but she's just like, I don't think he would take a case like this if he was just going to drop the ball. So anyway, right, that's so, my overall yeah. view. Yeah, let me let me hold up my end of the podcast <laughs> there, there there is no doubt in my mind to answer the critics that you started your um 
analysis with that if Trump wasn't a former president and hadn't announced that he's running for president, he likely would not, Merrick Garland, appointed a special counsel. Let me repeat, it's because Donald Trump is former president, current candidate for president, that the special counsel was appointed. Had he not announced that he was going to run, if he had shocked the world at Mar-a-Lago and said, I want to spend more time with my family, and I've decided not to run for office, Merrick Garland likely would not have appointed the special prosecutor or the special counsel because he wouldn't have had the conflict of interest that is so acute when his boss is running for office and the person he's looking at prosecuting is running for the same office. We saw a version of this when Fawny Willis held a fundraiser for an opponent of somebody that she was potentially going to target in a prosecution. It happens. So yes, there are special considerations that an attorney general has to make when the first time in over 270 years of a republic, he's going to prosecute a former president, current candidate for president. Yes, there are things you have to do that are not the same as if you and I embezzled money from our place of work or brought home secret documents or whatever it was. And and that's a good thing. And you have to, as you said, Ben, we've said this before, um, you know, it's, uh, we're beating the dead horse here. You can't send the prosecutors in unless they're loaded for bear. You can't send them in with a knife for a gunfight for the prosecution against Donald Trump. And they have to they have to rip away every privilege they can, interview every witness they can, look at every document they can, and square away all the esoteric legal issues they can before they end up in a courtroom on a prosecution. And that is exactly what the methodical, sober, adult prosecutors who you and I don't even know the names of, I mean, we, we could probably figure it all out, who every day from the moment their head gets off the pillow, brushing their teeth, saying goodbye to their families and kids, all they're thinking about in the last two years is Donald Trump and prosecutions related to him. That's all they're doing. And now Jack Smith, the superhero, turbocharged prosecutor, special counsel, coming in not at the beginning of the movie, right? He's not the producer of a movie. He doesn't have to like pick the script and go get the actors and go find financing and go get the cinematographer. This movie is already in production and close to being released. And he's coming in at the very end to do the final rushes, do the final editing, right? And get this thing ready for the film festival. That's where we're at. So Let's disabuse everybody of the notion that the appointment of the special counsel represents weakness or lack of gravitas or balls by Merrick Garland. Wrong. It's the opposite. Let's disabuse everybody of the thought that appointing the special counsel will lead to delay a la Mueller. Wrong. Mueller took over a nascent beginning investigation, had to start from scratch, including picking a team and developing it. And let's be honest, Mueller was a good FBI director. Okay, but he was a line prosecutor many, many years ago. That ain't this, right? And if you don't know, and now you know. So that's it. We're going to follow Jack Smith carefully. Everything he does is going to be in the paper. Everything, not, you know, not the back office stuff, but everything he does publicly, we're going to be reporting on in real time as he races to complete the prosecutions, make the decision to prosecute, which hasn't yet been made, and then go and tell his boss, I'm prosecuting Donald Trump on Mar-a-Lago, or I'm prosecuting him on Jan 6, and here's why. And Merrick Garland can say, okay, that presentation works for me. Go forward. 
And that's all we can do here on Legal AF and the Midas Touch Network, as we did with our election coverage. We avoid the narratives. We try to take the emotion out of it. And all I try to give you and Popak tries to give you and all of our other correspondents try to give you is just the objective data. <laughs> what you want to do with the data, you can do with the data. But I don't view things as, as that weakness, as that strength, is that like the reality is you got a special counsel who's got an impeccable reputation. Um, we've given you all the information about him and you could form your own opinions, but it's not a weakness thing or or anything other than it is following the rules. It is continuing what the DOJ should be doing. And we think it is a positive advancement for all of the reasons that we talked about. Speaking about positive advancements, I think finally this Judge Eileen Cannon is going to be overruled. I mean, she should never have asserted. <laughs> it, it's the most insane thing in the world. Uh. Like, there was no basis. Everyone was like, how does Judge Eileen Cannon, this Trump-appointed judge, assert equitable jurisdiction after the Department of Justice executed a valid search warrant where a magistrate judge found probable cause on August 5th? The search warrant was executed on August 8th. And then on September 5th, like after the Department of Justice had gone through all the records, Judge Eileen Cannon comes in and goes, stop, special master. And there's no law that ever justified it at all. Like, so she should never have had jurisdiction. Be before in the everybody gets Eileen Cannon fatigue, because we've been covering the crap out of this from day moment one. Let me tie it back to Jack Smith. Eileen Cannon is not the judge that's going to be the judge if this case ever gets tried and prosecuted against Donald Trump. All of this BS that's going on down in Southern District of Florida is only over the search warrant and in its impact, her rulings impact on investigations. Jack Smith is the new prosecutor responsible for the Mar-a-Lago prosecution, and that prosecution will take place if it happens, not in Southern District, not before Judge Cannon, but in Washington, D.C., before a judge to be named later, period. Everybody take a big sigh of relief. I'm going to do it. Ah. <sighs> Cannon is not the judge that's going to be adjudicating, along with the jury, a prosecution in the future of Donald Trump. It will be in Washington under Jack Smith. So, and that's where the grand juries currently are the, that are investigating Trump's crimes are in Washington, D.C. And so oral argument has been set by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. It was set earlier in the week. It's going to take place on November 22nd. Trump submitted his brief on, I think, November 14th. The reply was submitted by the DOJ on November 17th or, or, or somewhere around there. Trump may have submitted it a day or two earlier than that. Trump rehashed the same exact arguments he added a new one but but mostly the same exact arguments that he lost on when the department of justice previously filed a motion for an emergency stay with the 11th circuit where they returned the 100 classified records so this appeal now just deals with the remaining 11,000 other records that the department of justice doesn't have back yet they have the classified records back but the DOJ is making the same arguments that they got the 100 classified records back when they made those arguments there with these 11,000 um, records. The, the new one that Trump added was this thing about that they're his personal records and, and that he he followed the, the Presidential Records Act. And he says he followed the Presidential Records Act and declared all of the government records that he stole as personal because he packed them. And when he put them in boxes and shipped them to Mar-a-Lago, that automatically converted 
government records, presidential records, to his personal records. So by stealing it and packing it, it then became his personal records. And he cites this this Bill Clinton Sox case, which has nothing to do with anything. It's filed by that Finton guy from Judicial Watch, who's not a lawyer, who kind of acts like he's a lawyer. And he filed a lawsuit in 2012 to compel the National Archives to sue Bill Clinton to get back audio recordings that Bill Clinton took in connection with his autobiography, which the National Archives agreed were personal records because they involved Clinton's personal autobiography. And so that's the case that Donald Trump cites. The Sox case. It's a Sox case. And a case has nothing to do with it. You can't steal records and then pack them and say, well, guess what? Now they're mine, which is the new argument that Donald Trump raises. But then the Department of Justice comes back in their reply brief, and it's great. And they go, okay, so even if you say they're your personal records, you're now changing your entire argument because you previously started this whole process asserting executive privilege and saying that we needed a special master to deal with your executive privilege claims and to sort through their documents. Okay, so if they're all personal records, then we have the right to get those records regardless as part of our search warrant. So it undercuts your underlying basis, which was never accurate to begin with, and the Department of Justice just lays them out. So what do you think is going to happen at this oral argument on November 22nd? I think Cannon's toast. I think I think Cannon, <laughs> Cannon toast, new sponsor for Legal AF. I think the um, the panel, which has not yet been named, but will soon, right, Ben? I don't think there's been a naming of the yeah, I don't know the panel, right? And that's normal for everybody understands. I mean, I handle appellate cases, and um, you're always kind of on pins and needles as the advocate in the courtroom to know who your panel is, but you don't find that out until about a week before the argument. So it'll be coming up. And once we know who the uh, the uh, judges are and who they were appointed by on the Eleventh Circuit, you know, again, six out of six out of the eleven are Republican appointees, um, and five are, um, you know, have some sort of ties to the Democrats. But we'll see who the panel is. You know, he's doing very poorly at the Eleventh Circuit. Donald Trump is, and has lost already by the prior three judge panel. I think this three judge panel is going to be a very hot bench against Donald Trump's lawyers. Um, and they're going to, you know, prediction. This is why we get paid no bucks here. The, the prediction is that they're going to say that the judge didn't have overstepped her power to even take jurisdiction and that all of her orders from that false ruling, fake ruling about her having jurisdiction should be vacated and overturned, including poof, special master and the special master scheme disappears, which means the precedent that she the terrible precedent that that Cannon set that would have bit the Department of Justice in the backside in future cases, don't you know, brought by Trump and the others like, oh, we got a great decision, at, you know, Judge Cannon and start quoting from it and citing from it. And if the 11th Circuit upheld it, it would be terrible. We, we got to like erase it from the book so that it never happens whatsoever. And Jack Smith, who's like, you know, we talked about it earlier, you know, wrapping up his bandaged leg from his bike accident, getting on that plane. He's probably already down in Washington, picking his team, pulling in meetings with people of all the line prosecutors in Maine Justice who have been handling the case to date and the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia and all the other people that were up on the podium with Merrick Garland 
um, uh, at the time he made the presentation yesterday. Um, you know, he's going to like, well, give me the update. What's going on with uh, Judge Cannon and this special master thing? Oh, yeah, we have the hearing on the uh, the oral argument on the 11th. And, and either way, by mid-December, they're going to have all, really, all the Mar-a-Lago documents they need, either from the 11th Circuit making the ruling to vacate Judge Cannon's order and making the special master disappear, or because the special master, who's every day doing his job and getting the documents reviewed, is done by the mid-December uh, deadline that Judge Cannon had originally set. So full steam ahead. We'll, we'll hopefully we'll never hear about Judge Cannon again as it relates to the Mar-a-Lago investigation as Jack Smith takes over the case from a prosecutor standpoint. We will keep you posted on what happens there, but we're pretty confident, I can say, that uh, the 11th Circuit is going to find that Judge Cannon should never have asserted jurisdiction in the first place. Speaking about jurisdiction, Popak, some weird contortions of the law by Trump-appointed judges, mostly at, at issue here, um, who have the strangest and most bizarre standing analysis in order for them to then get to the merits. I don't even think the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals got to the merits in their order, but this massive effort by the Federalist Society lawyers, Republican Federalist Society lawyers, well, they're all Republicans in the Federalist Society, to get in front of Federalist Society judges to block Biden's student debt cancellation program. Biden's student debt cancellation program is anathema to everything the Federalist Society stands for. And what they stand for is benefits to billionaires, tax cuts to billionaires and corporations, but how dare you have a targeted debt cancellation program on people earning less than $125,000. And mostly the program is benefiting people who make less than $75,000. So we've got this case in the Northern District of Texas that went before a Trump-appointed judge, Judge Pittman. And there... It, all these cases are astroturfed, and so these right-wing groups found these two students who sued Biden administration and the Secretary of Education, basically arguing there was one student who had a commercial loan, so that student wasn't getting the benefit of the debt cancellation, and another student had only gotten 10000 uh, dollars in debt cancellation, but not the full 20000 as if they had a Pell Grant. So because they didn't get the full benefits of the program, they argued nobody should get the benefits of the program. And that was their basis for standing. And then Judge Pittman went to the merits regarding the HEROES Act, which is a 2003 law, which says in certain situations, one involving kind of military emergencies, but then it also says or in other emergency situations, the Secretary of Education has the right to do things like targeted student debt cancellation. And so that was the statute that was invoked by the Secretary of Education in the Biden administration to implement the student debt cancellation program. And what Judge Pittman ruled is that that was an overreach of the executive branch because the student debt cancellation program was not authorized by the HEROES Act, which Pittman says that just relates to the military. And you would have to have another 
statute that would be implemented and passed by Congress before the Biden administration can act there. Then you go north to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in a case filed in the Eastern District of Missouri originally by Republican-led states. And Nebraska is the state whose name is on the pleading, but it's a bunch of Republican-led states like Missouri and I think Tennessee and, and a bunch of other a bunch of other states. And they argued basically that by canceling the student debt, that the states would not be able to get additional tax revenue they would otherwise get if they were to tax the student debt cancellation and then the debt being canceled. And then another uh, claim that they make is that these these uh, collection agencies affiliated with the states that collect student debt, that they're going to be hurt and therefore the states are hurt. The Eastern District of Missouri District Court judge, uh, who was appointed by George W. Bush, found the states have no standing because if that was the basis of standing, then states have general standing basically for everything to, to just to sue on any on any piece of legislation, period. Um, then there was appeal to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in a very weird ruling, uh, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, first they granted a temporary injunction. Now they've granted an, a, a full injunction pending a full appeal, which could be years, right, Popak? I mean, that's not a short injunction that they issued. And they didn't even really address the standard for an injunction. Like if you look at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling, it doesn't even talk about a probability of success on the merits by the states. Like literally the Eighth Circuit's analysis, and it was two Trump judges and one George W. Bush judge, their whole entire analysis was basically, look, this is a really big question and it could affect lots of people. So we want to preserve the status quo because students really aren't going to be hurt like this. And so because students aren't going to be hurt by the lack of the student debt cancellation program being implemented, we're just going to preserve the status quo. Like seriously, you think students are not going to be hurt by this? And they, you think the states are the one who are going to be injured with their fake argument or that down in Texas? That the students, the fake students that have been brought in, by the way, that Myra Brown, the Intercept did a, or, or something like that, they did a great piece on who this Myra Brown is. She had debt canceled under the PPP program. She's one of the people, the students, the so-called students who the right-wing groups brought. And then when the journalist reached out to the student who sued, and the student referred um, the, the journalist to you know, a Federalist Society right-wing group who engineered this lawsuit. But the Biden administration's fighting back, right, Popak? Yeah, look, you got a $400 billion program here that is on hold because of what the Fifth Circuit and the um, Eighth Circuit have done. And the Eighth Circuit uh, states that you were referring to that brought the case were Missouri, Nebraska, Alaska, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina. And you're right, if if states who didn't like federal policy had standing to challenge it in court, oh, what a world of hurt we'd all be in when when um, when Red America would be able to challenge a Biden or any Democratic Congress or Democratic uh, Democratic president's policies. So you have a filing on Friday, an interesting one. I want to talk about the procedural interest. Uh, things that are interesting about it to me, and therefore hopefully will be interesting to our listeners and followers. The Eighth Circuit, which had the um, 
the uh, ruling that you talked about in joining the continued processing of applications and and um, ca forgiveness of student debt cancellation um, is headed by Kavanaugh as the as the assistant justice associate justice who's responsible for that region. The uh, Department of Justice informed the Fifth Circuit, which is has uh, upheld Judge Pittman's ruling, and and uh, that they would be filing a Supreme Court application, not on an emergency basis. We'll talk about the difference in a minute, but they would be filing immediately an application to have the Eighth Circuit, which you've already in detail described have their decision to stay the the um, program overturned, to appeal it, to vacate it. They've told the Fifth Circuit that so that they know what they're doing because the Fifth Circuit, the Eighth Circuit sort of are conjoined twins that go together here. But the filing is technically in the Eighth Circuit case. So our Solicitor General uh, filed on Friday a 40-page brief it is not addressed to Judge Kavanaugh because they are not doing an emergency shadow docket appeal. Let me make that clear. Right now, they've given the court basically one major way to do this on an expedited track, not through the emergency appeal process, which is, uh, which is decided at the first instance by the judge, justice assigned to the Eighth Circuit, Kavanaugh, Either he makes the decision himself or he turns it over, as we've talked about in the past, to the full nine on the bench. They didn't do that. What they've said to the Supreme Court is, you have the power to do what's called a writ of certiorari before final judgment, meaning you can make an appellate decision before there's even a final judgment on the case, similar to the standards that you outlined, Ben, for an injunction. Likelihood of success on the merits, um, and and the other factors that go into into that, so they've said to the they basically invited the Supreme Court to treat this as a writ of cert before judgment on an expedited track. But we shouldn't all be waiting around for Kavanaugh to make a decision because it's not addressed to him, and they didn't do it that way for their own for their own purposes. The attack is simple. Um, the the grounds for the appeal are simple. One, the Eighth Circuit, and ultimately the Fifth Circuit is wrong. There is no Article Three standing, we'll take it for the Eighth Circuit, of all these states at all. And they go through a complete analysis of why Article Three standing is so important, it's so limited, and why federal courts and the Supreme Court often finds that it hasn't been met and the reasons why it hasn't been met here by these individual states. And then ultimately that the Secretary of Education's acts, acts under the HEROES statute, HEROES law, are totally appropriate. And now we got to see what the Supreme Court is going to do next with the filing. If they're going to treat it as a writ of cert on an expedited track, we'll know that. If they reject the application or just put it into the dead letter office to be considered at a normal caucus while the Supreme Court is still in session until the start of the summer, we'll know that too. The downside is this program is mothballed until there is an ultimate decision by the by the Supreme Court, hopefully, to find that the Biden administration 
was completely right about their powers under the HERO Act and or, which the Supreme Court often does, find there's a lack of standing so that they don't exert any judicial authority at all, which is usually the way that the Supreme Court finds the exit on a case like this. But we'll have to see when all of this is brought together. So Fifth Circuit, Eighth Circuit, the appeal is on the Eighth Circuit to the Supreme Court, impacts the Fifth Circuit. But either way, what does it mean for every every taxpayer and, and person who's holding a student loan? You're on hold, unfortunately. You're on ice and you got to pay your bills until the Supreme Court gets around to ruling. You know, my uh, expectation would be, and I don't know this, but that the Biden administration will continue the pause on student debt cancellation while they appeal. Um, But nonetheless, the current pause is set to expire at the end of the year because it was believed that the student debt cancellation program. Oh, I agree with you. They're not going to run that program until they get clear guidance for one way or the other from the Supreme Court. No doubt. And I think they'll continue to pause, as they have right now, the debt collection pending uh, the ruling. But we will uh, keep you posted there. If you support independent media like this, check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Midas Touch. There's lots of great exclusive content that you could only see on the Midas Touch Patreon. But most importantly, when you become a patron, you could help support this independent network grow. We are not supported by any outside investors at all. So we are not funded by any of the uh, millionaires and billionaires who support the both sides media and the pro-fascist media. So please, if you can, no worries. If you can, go check us out at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch today and consider joining this podcast podcast is also brought to you by our partner, Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can lead us leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens, the category-leading superfood product, brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everyone. Here's what I love about it. It replaced my previous regimen where I had gummies and pills and all these things that I would take. It was not giving me the energy I needed. I was not getting the vitamins and minerals I needed. But with one tasty scoop of AG1, and I mean it really tastes great, with one tasty scoop of AG1, it contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, and more in one convenient daily serving. It's a special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system. Effectively replacing multiple products or pills with one healthy, delicious drink, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And it's lifestyle friendly, so whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, this is for you. Join the movement of athletes, life fleets, and legal AFers right now and get AG1. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free 
one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs exclusively here on Legal AF. With your first purchase, if you go to athleticgreens.com slash Legal AF today, A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C-G-R-E-E-N-S.com slash Legal AF today. Again, visit athleticgreens.com slash Legal AF and take control of your health and give AG1 a try. And I love endorsing stuff that I use. Um, and I love AG1. Let's talk about what's going on with Trump's frivolous lawsuit that everything him is frivolous, but another frivolous lawsuit that he filed against the New York Attorney General, <laughs> Letitia James. I thought we- you were going to do, I thought the segue there, see, I missed you after two years. I thought the segue there was going to be AG1 to New York AG talking about the independent monitor, but it's okay. I'm not as crafty as you folks. That, that would have that would have been a that would have been a good one. Speaking the, of AG one, <laughs> what gives me energy is talking about Trump's frivolous lawsuits and Trump losing. Um, so Trump filed this frivolous frivolous lawsuit in state court in Florida against the New York Attorney General Letitia James. I, I read the thing. I, I still don't really know what he's asking. Like it's that frivolous. He's basically says in the lawsuit, Tish James bad, Donald Trump brilliant. And then if you go to paragraph 119, I think he's asking, he was asking the state court to try to block the New York attorney general from getting information about the Trump revocable trust, which the New York attorney general just showed the state court judge who's overseeing the fraud lawsuit that's been filed against Donald Trump for fraudulent valuations. And one of the things that the New York attorney general had argued is Trump is trying to engage in fraudulent conveyances of assets to try to avoid a judgment in New York because the New York AG is seeking at least $250 million in damages from Trump's scheme. And so right before she had her preliminary injunction hearing, New York Attorney General Letitia James said, you see this ridiculous lawsuit that he filed in Florida to try to conceal the status of assets being hidden in the revocable trust? Yeah, that's why we need an independent monitor in the Trump organization. And uh, that judge in New York, Arthur Engeron, appointed the independent monitor. The independent monitor both sides agreed to was uh, Judge Barbara Jones. Uh, earlier in the week, Judge, uh, she's a retired judge, uh, Barbara Jones, uh, an order came from Arthur Engeron where he gave Barbara Jones all these powers like Trump's got to turn over all of his finances and all of his information to Barbara Jones within like the next there's one where he has to turn over something in the next five days. By the end of November, he has to give a complete corporate structure of the Trump organization under oath, affidavits under penalty of perjury to Barbara Jones. And this is the part I like the most because this is where I think Trump miscalculated. I think he wanted Barbara Jones because he's like, Barbara Jones is a special master. She's not really an independent monitor who may, she may not be able to do a forensic accounting of our books the same way a forensic accountant could. And the other selection choices were forensic accountants. But as I said, I said, first off, don't underestimate Barbara Jones. She's a former federal judge of the Southern District of New York. She's seen financial cases, number one. But number two, what Judge Engeron ordered in the order appointing an independent monitor was that she can hire a staff and Trump's got to pay for it. So she can hire forensic accountants to now look through Trump's books and records to assist her. And that was an Alina Haba move right there, selecting uh, Barbara Jones yeah. as well. 
I've never been involved with an independent monitor or receiver who didn't have a team or staff around them of forensic people. Sometimes the monitor is, if it's a financial case, a CPA, and then they hire lawyers to assist them. Here, the lawyer hired lawyer. The lawyer will be hiring forensic people to assist her. So you 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 tied them together. So I'll I'll keep them tied. The the middle, you know, the too smart by half maneuver that. Trump made in filing in state court on his trust issues was, of course, to try to avoid the wheel spinning and him getting Middlebrooks again. He hates Middlebrooks. Middlebrooks is in federal court. So he filed in state court. We talked about the fact that, you know, there was a a judge that may have been appointed to the case or there was for, for for a hot minute. While Letitia James hired a law firm that I actually know, Bills and Sumberg, a very good law firm down in the Southern District of Florida area, applies their trade down there. And they figured out in like a half a second that, A, there's not going to be jurisdiction over Letitia James down there. But the better place to make those arguments is in federal court under a diversity argument, diversity jurisdiction argument, meaning a residence of two different states or one country in another country um, that have that have uh, uh legal dispute can remove, take their case out of state court and take it into federal court if the uh, jurisdictional amount in controversy is sufficient, which it was here. So they got it over. And I know that those lawyers at Bilzen are really, really sharp. And they were hoping and praying and lighting candles that it would land with Judge Middlebrooks filing in West Palm Beach. And it did. And Judge Middlebrooks, who's currently assessing, you know, about a dozen motions for sanctions. He's already ruled in favor of the defendant against Trump in one. He's going to end up issuing a million dollars worth of sanctions against Donald Trump and his lawyers, including Alina Haba, for that case he brought against Hillary Clinton. That could bankrupt Alina Haba's uh, law firm. But um, so this is the judge, you know, a judge that I've appeared in front of. The judge um, who just sanctioned Trump. Yes. The frivolous lawsuit. That and, and 10 more to go. 10 more 10 to go. more sanctions motions to go. <laughs> and the judge who said this, Popak. Yeah. Yeah. Read that quote. The, I love this that This is what quote. the judge said. Um, the rule of law is undermined by the toxic combination of political fundraising with legal fees paid by political action committees, reckless and factually untrue statements by lawyers at rallies and in the media, and efforts to advance a political narrative through lawsuits without factual basis or any cognizable legal theory. Lawyers are enabling this behavior, and I am pessimistic that my Rule 11 sanctions alone can effectively stem this abuse. Aspects may be requiring state bar disciplinary authorities to get involved. That's the judge who now has got this case. (laughs) He also also said, and I quote, that the earlier lawsuit was a 200-page political manifesto masquerading as a lawsuit. And the only thing that was tying all these defendants together was they were, uh, it was part of Trump's animus, hatred towards them. And that was it. This is the judge. I give it six weeks from the beginning of briefing until he dismisses the case for lack of jurisdiction, at least uh, on the case, and then considers sanctions that Letitia James's office will bring under the same Rule 11 that we talked about at length last time. Let me talk about Barbara Jones for a minute, because we love big heart Karen Friedman Ignifolo. The Karen Friedman Ignifolo of the Manhattan DA's office when Robert Morgenthau, the model for every prosecutor on law and order, was 
Ben, you see where I'm going? Go for it, Popak. Get us there. Barbara, Barbara Jones. Barbara Jones. Drive it home. Land what? the plane. Barbara jo- <laughs> Listen, listen. We've been floating around that airfield quite a lot today. I'm landing the plane. Barbara Jones was the Karen Freeman Ecnifilo for Robert Margatha. She was the number two in his office. I confirmed this with, with uh, Karen through texting yesterday. She then became a federal judge. She's been a prosecutor of organized crime when she was a U.S. attorney. She was a federal judge. She was the number two in the Manhattan DA's office before before Bar- uh, Karen Freeman Ecnifilo was. She works at a major law firm. She knows how to do this. And I don't even know how they're going to talk about being caught flat-footed. I'm not sure that um, Alina Hobb and the other geniuses over there were ready that in two weeks now, less than two weeks, they have to give Barbara Jones a full accounting of all of their assets and holdings at the Trump organization and its structure. That's like, you know, it's not like you just go into a file on your server that's marked holdings and assets. I mean, you should be able to and hit print. They, they're going to hate this having to turn over with values next to it, you know, or maybe it's just a list that we leave it to Barbara Jones to figure out values. But but, uh, te- you know, that is a um, since they haven't been able to get out from under the independent monitor, Barbara Jones is no joke. Um, this is a serious, sober person. We've seen it in the past, and she's going to run this thing. And she's as serious as a heart attack. She's going to run this thing um, the way it's supposed to be run with frequent reporting to Judge Engeron. And they're not going to be able to move a dime off a tabletop without getting Barbara Jones's permission, okay, at all in a full reporting. And if they do something else, like try to transfer something to, to uh, a different organization uh, to Ivanka in Florida or whatever they're going to, whatever shell game, shell game is over, right? Right. The musical chairs has stopped. The music has stopped. The assets will stay in place until Letitia James is done with her $250 million disgorgement lawsuit um, and civil suit against Trump, Ivanka, Eric Jr., Don Jr., and the rest. One of the funniest things to me, and this is just me being a legal geek, is that Trump and his lawyers objected to the the appointment of Barbara Jones as the special master in the Mar-a-Lago search warrant case before Judge Eileen Cannon. So this is how the episode goes full circle. They objected to her there. But then we're okay with, and then and then they got Raymond Deary because they recommended Raymond Deary, and Raymond Deary has basically been doing order after order, basically calling out Trump and his lawyers for making frivolous claims. So they recommended a judge who now is saying that they are awful, and now they appointed Barbara Jones, who they previously objected to, who the New York Attorney General also wanted, who is now going well, did- to be his worst nightmare. Let me ask you a question. Did they object or they, it just wasn't on their list? Like they proposed to um, when they had to do it for the Ray Deary. Ray Deary and they and then a, a Paul Huck Jr., who had no experience whatsoever in this world. And then the, and the government proposed to uh, which one was Barbara Jones. But did they actually object to Barbara Jones or it just they wasn't on their list? Form. Okay. No, no, no. They, fought, they actually wrote a pleading and saying that we object and that – we could more fully tell you our objections in camera. And then uh, Eileen Cannon never heard the objection, uh, even though they said they objected. And Eileen Cannon was just doing Trump's bidding. So she picked Judge Deary. And Judge Deary's been a very able judge making appropriate 
uh, orders. Let, let, let's talk about this uh, Mark Meadows uh, busy week in court. So Mark Meadows was previously ordered by the South Carolina State Court to appear before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury that's in, engaged in an investigation into criminal election interference. We've talked about it before on the on this podcast. When you're seeking to subpoena someone in a criminal proceeding out of state, it's a two-step process. And there are and states have what's called like a uniform law to compel witnesses out of state to testify in another state. And so step one, you go to uh, the judge within your state. Um, and that's what uh, Fonnie Willis, the district attorney of Fulton County, did, got a certi certification of material witness. Then you go to South Carolina, the South Carolina judge, then orders uh, that uh, that uh, Meadows goes and testifies in the Fulton County proceeding. That's set to take place, I believe, November 30th. Um, so Mark Meadows was ordered by two courts to, sh to show up, two state courts, and he's done an immediate appeal to the Supreme Court of South Carolina. And his big argument to the South Carolina Supreme Court, his new one, was that uh, his privacy interests are uh, being violated, that he's because he has to appear and there may be a report prepared with his name, his personal privacy interest, which is the most offensive of, of all arguments, I think. I mean, he makes one argument that he's not a material witness. He makes another argument that the Fulton County criminal special grand jury is not actually engaged in a criminal proceeding, which has been rejected in every other state court. But the one that really bugged me was the privacy argument as these MAGA Republicans have taken away women's privacy and taken away a woman's right to control her own body. He Here's a man arguing that his privacy of is being violated because he has to appear before a grand jury to talk about the insurrection. And then separately, Meadows, and this was kind of not talked about all that much, but Meadows' lawsuit against Nancy Pelosi and the January 6th committee to try to block testifying before the January 6th committee. He's already been held in contempt, but he filed the lawsuit to try to validate his decision not to testify before the January 6th committee. Uh, a Trump-appointed judge, federal judge Carl Nichols, on October 31st, had found that Mark Meadows lacked jurisdiction to even bring the case and found under the Constitutional Speech and Debate Clause he couldn't sue the January 6th committee. Um, and then- Is it, uh, Isn't that nice to see the Speech and Debate Clause used appropriately by a judge instead of what Lindsey Graham tried to do to deny his ability to testify. See, that's the proper application of the speech and debate clause. You can't, yes, if you're a, if you're a congressperson or or in this case uh, Meadows, you can't sue the Congress for doing its job. Exactly. And it was interesting, too, because Congress, the January 6th committee, wanted to argue the merits. They actually wanted <laughs> to make the argument right. at this, that he didn't have the executive privilege arguments and the, and the other ridiculous arguments he was trying to make. So they didn't raise the speech and debate clause. And Judge Carl Nichols said to them, you should have raised it. And the fact that you didn't raise it is not a waiver. It is a threshold jurisdictional issue. So Mark Meadows filed an emergency application. Uh, to stay the enforcement of Judge Carl Nichols' ruling because what the ruling essentially would require is Verizon to turn over the remaining Meadows phone records to the January 6th committee. And that was rejected by Judge Carl Nichols. Who And again, charge, Judge Carl Nichols was kind of crafty in his opinions because he was just basically like, well, there's nothing I could even do there. Verizon's not even a party to the case. Too bad, <laughs> so sad. That's what he said. Too bad, so look, sad. Look, look, I, look, can't, let, I can't order them to do anything. Let, 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 Let's short circuit this. They already, the Supreme Court 
And the person that will be the duty judge over the Carl Nichols decision when Meadows goes that route is Chief Justice Roberts. We just saw what they did with um, with Dr. What, Kerry Ward, Kelly Ward, at her records where they said, no, no, it's okay, T-Mobile, turn over the records. I mean, the fact that these people think that it is it is appropriate and it is in good faith to continue to argue rulings that they know or should know are not either appropriate under the law or a good faith extension of the law, which is the standard for being sanctionable, because they're, well, I didn't argue that particular thing. Like this, all this crap we just saw uh, on the filing by Trump, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled time and time again that Jan 6 committee is going to get their records. They haven't turned it down at all, ever. So why Mark Meadows thinks he's going to be any different? No, his records, his Verizon records are going to be different. You know, and the fact that they continue vexatiously to bring these bring these applications, waste everybody's time for delay, 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 because, oh, well, my name wasn't on the uh, the case. Yeah, but somebody just like you was. You're going to turn out these records, these Verizon phone records, which couldn't possibly be communication covered by executive privilege, are going to get turned over. Hurry it up. Well, you know, the tactic is delay, delay, delay. But Mark Meadows, we'll see what happens in the South Carolina Supreme Court. You know, I, I don't know. The, I, I got to be, I'll tell you what I don't know. I, have, I haven't fine-tuned my analysis of South Carolina's Supreme Court recent decisions. But the fact that Mark Meadows wants to short circuit and go directly to them on this argument doesn't feel great, you know, and it feels like he feels that he's got something wired there, but it should be a very simple decision for them to make because of the comity between states, C-O-M-I-T-Y. When one state finds someone's a material witness in a criminal proceeding, the other state's not supposed to second guess that, but we will keep you updated. But more of the same with MAGA extremists trying to avoid their testimony, um, when they go and write books and they go in their right-wing networks, but when they're forced to actually confront their unlawful actions, they run from the hill. I want to say this in closing, because this is breaking news as of the recording of this podcast, though. When I, I mentioned, I don't know the composition of the South Carolina Supreme Court. I'm pessimistic generally in South Carolina, but we'll see what based, based on the composition of other legislative bodies there, but but we'll see. But there was this really uh, alarming story from the New York Times earlier today about Reverend Rob Schneck, who had, he was formerly um, this, you know, anti-abortion activist um, who engaged in a lot of uh, really dangerous stunts, um, very performative stuff. He has this group called Faith in Action that he ran through 2018. Um, and he's since recognized that everything he did was wrong. And he's since told his story, but he's never told this story about his past behavior. And one of the things he did in Faith in Action is he had something called Operation High Court where he tried to influence the United States Supreme Court by utilizing wealthy families to join social clubs with the Supreme Court justices and go to dinners with the Supreme Court justices and, and befriend them and have all of these relationships with them. And what it talks about 
is, and there's lots of contemporaneous evidence backing this up, is that this one family, Don and Gail Wright, um, who were one of the people used by Reverend Rob Schneck in this faith in action organization, befriended Sam Alito and, and, and some others, but, but Sam Alito in particular, and would have dinners at his house. And Sam Alito and uh, now deceased Justice Scalia would give them like front row seats to oral arguments as part of the friendship. But that the Supreme Court justices in 2014, specifically Sam Alito, at a dinner with the Wright family, um, told them about a decision that he was going to make. In other words, he leaked a ruling um, that the Supreme Court was going to side with the Hobby Lobby Corporation that didn't want to fund uh, contraception as part of their uh, Affordable Care Act obligations. And weeks before the ruling came out, Alito had told Don and Gail Wright, who then told Reverend Rob Schneck, what the ruling was going to be. And then Reverend Rob Schneck told the Hobby Lobby people to try to get them to become additional donors of the faith in action negotiation. When the decision in Dobbs was leaked, I immediately thought it was right-wing, you know, right-wing extremists on the court who were leaking it to try to, uh, to stop its huge impact or to just kind of leak it in drips so that the country would be ready for it when it would happen. Um, and there was no, there was no incentive I thought for anyone, um, the pro democracy democratic appointees on there to leak it. It, it wouldn't serve, it wouldn't serve any advantage to, to do that. And so I always thought it was a right winger, but here we have now evidence of this court whose legitimacy is rightfully being questioned um, with people like Alito having dinner with these individuals who, and telling them about opinions he was writing, you know, he was going to write. Alito denies that that takes, that that took place, but we've got a lot of contemporaneous emails and evidence that support it. So I just wanted to touch on that, Popak, because as we go back to the earlier themes of this episode, where we talked about you know, if anyone else was in this situation, they'd be prosecuted. But why is there a different standard for Trump? You know, elections have consequences. The importance of voting, the importance of supporting candidates who support our democracy and who are normal, it, it couldn't be more important. We're seeing this already as the agenda by Republicans in the House seem to be whatever Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to do. Already it's a focus on conspiracy theories and how to defund Ukraine and defund the FBI and investigations and not talking about issues that matter. That's why we do this show each week. Um, Michael Popak, myself, that's why we bring you the experts. We don't have talking heads on the Midas Touch Network. We have experts who break down the objective data for you. And that is why it is a complete honor that I get to do this with you, Michael Popak, a true expert each and every weekend. Final words before we go, Michael Popak. Yeah, I think the most troubling thing about the reporting on the Hobby Lobby is it confirms what we've always suspected, which is that these justices in their off time, in their off duty time, socialize with um, are not apolitical, are not neutral, 
and do not go out of their way to assiduously remain independent, which is what we want our judiciary at the highest level in our checks and balance system to be. Instead, they are craven, they are base, and they are and they are weak, and they are humans, and they socialize with the right right wing, the fundamentalist religious people. They go to the Federalist Society in black tie to be feted for their rulings. It is the exact opposite of what we want in a federal judiciary and in a Supreme Court judiciary. I mean, I remember the times, <clears throat> seems like so long ago, when just Supreme Court justices, mainly Alito, said he's not going to go to the State of the Union address that the president was giving, in this case Obama, because he didn't want the judiciary to seem political. And yet he's hobnobbing with every um, everyone on the other end of the spectrum that can help influence his decisions. Um, and um, I don't think there's any doubt that Alito or someone for Alito leaked the decision in order to make it almost impossible for Justice Roberts to create a coalition to save Roe versus Wade. You and I thought that at the very beginning, because once it was published, then any of the backroom negotiations that would normally go on in caucus to try to get enough votes, get a Kavanaugh get a Amy Coney Barrett, get a Gorsuch to come over to try to salvage an aspect of, of Roe versus Wade, which we know from the ruling Roberts was trying to do, ended, was dashed at that moment. And that was the goal of releasing it. And again, this is not the first time. If the reporting is correct and the the, the uh, right, the, the, uh, the woman, the wife has denied it, but if the reporting is correct... This is Sam Alito is the most dangerous justice on the U.S. Yeah. Supreme Court, bar none. The wife has an email right after she <laughs> had that dinner with Sam Alito to this Reverend Rob Schneck saying, I got information for you, but we can only talk about it by the phone. Like there's a contemporaneous, <laughs> there's a, there, you know, it's the gaslighting of these liars. Also, one of the pro-democracy judges would not have leaked it to Politico. Okay, that's such a right. <laughs> that's such a right-wing move. To have all the places to leak it to, you're leaking it to Politico anyway. Right. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. It is our honor to be with you each and every weekend. If you can go check out our Patreon, go to Patreon.com/slash/MidasTouch. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash/MidasTouch. Support independent media like this. We are not funded by any outside investors at all. So we rely 100% on you. So if you can, no worries if you can. There's lots of great exclusive content over there. We're almost at 3,000 patrons. So consider helping us get to 3,000. Check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. Also check out store.midastouch.com. Store.midastouch.com for the best unapologetic pro-democracy gear. We even have legal AF wheels of justice, long sleeve shirts. We'll see you next time here. Oh, special thanks to Athletic Greens. I really do like Athletic Greens. And so if you're thinking about, hey, should I really get it? Does it really taste good? Really, you know, check it out. Athleticgreens.com slash Legal AF. Until next time, I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. This is Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Mighty.